Hi there, you're listening to Runelanders. I'm Adam, your host and friendly neighborhood dungeon master. Now before we begin, a couple of things. First, we're a curated actual play, which means we cut out most of the dice rolling and rules checks and table talk to concentrate on the story. Next, Runelanders contains adult content about as much as your average late evening premium cable series. Now this is things like rough language and frank descriptions of terrifying situations and adult topics such as sex work and drug use. We don't beat these topics over the head and they're not in every episode, but they do exist as part of the setting, so we don't shy away from them when they come up either. Use your judgment. If that sort of thing isn't your bag, well then, this probably isn't the podcast for you. If, however, that is your sort of thing, well then... Dig, if you will, this fractured fable of a felonious fellowship's forays through the suave salons and sinister saloons of Byzantine Bailey Mina, the city of steel and steam. Thrilled with the adventures of this criminal cadre as they climbed notoriety and beyond, will they remain merely outlaws or will they become true villains? Well, I could tell you, but it's more fun if we show you. We're the Runelanders. This is Rapscallion, so get ready, Runatics, and let's roll. Now we open this episode in an encampment of Duke Galloglass. Uh, tents have been raised. There is a perimeter of unicorns and their riders facing out around this settlement of tents, which sits on a high hill, looking down a long slope into the late precincts of winter. It is the early days of the spring on your trail to meet the violet vicomtesse in the autumn precincts. Stomping and confounding redcaps. Right. You could hold red cat. Now, it is cold. It's miserable. It's wet. You know, you're heading out of the nice weather and back into the shit. The border with winter lies just ahead, oh warlock of Kern. And the boogeyman has fled Wittershins back through the cold season. You've tracked him this far, but had to stop for the night. The servants have put up a pagoda. And you and the Duke are settling in for a spot of rum and goblin poker with the locals. As you go about your business, checking the lines, making sure the logistics are in order, that the next settlement is already, like the next group of servants has already moved on to set up the next bunch of tents for the next night's rest in the precincts of winter. One of the guards comes clopping up with a ragged figure, a half-elven man. He's plain as paper. You couldn't pick him out of a lineup. But uh, by the look of his features, he seems happy to see you. I'll wave the rider over. What do we have? What do we have here? We found this hobo picking about the lines. So I was taking him into the Duke. He says he's an old acquaintance of yours, actually, but 
I don't recall you having any other friends except for his grace. And yourself, surely? Sir Warlock, we are all the best friends of his grace, aren't we? No, no, I, I'm not sure. Turning to the, what have you, uh, what, have, what have you to say for yourself, raggedy man? As advertised, he's plain as paper. His clothes look like they might have been finer once, but he also looks like he's dragged himself through the woods for a year. You know, um, his beard is shaggy and his, you know, he's missing the tip of one of his ears and uh, his eyes glint with a mischievous intelligence. He goes, Snotty, is that you? You will address me as your lordship. Thank you. Nanny, come on, mate. It's me, Owen Jobsworth, your old mate. You must remember. Jobsworth? Jobsworth? Make a wisdom save, please. Sorry, a save, not a check, right? Correct. There's a 16 plus... Uh, oh, the page is having some issues here. 16 is plenty as it is, but... Okay, cool. Yeah, because I've got like a plus, like at least four or five on it, so... Yeah, six, 16 is plenty as it is. I set it at 15, you beat it, so you're good. Jobsworth. Jo Jobsworth? Yes, Jobsworth. That Jobsworth. You remember who he is and in relation to you, but yet he's not a member of the staff, and there's a pang of dissonance and... For a moment, this has happened on a few occasions, mostly while on the trail of your nemesis, this wild boogeyman who keeps one step ahead of you. The torches all pause for a second. Everything just pauses for a second. And, and yes, now, okay, now you, you remember him and you remember who that he, yes, okay, you do know this Jobsworth. It's Jobsworth. Jobsworth is your butler, but you yeah, you don't remember ever having him on the staff here at Kern. It's, it's weird because you've always been the warlock of Kern, haven't you? Well, I will sort of like look uh, thoughtfully off sort of into the distance up at the sky. Big show of, you know, my powerful brain turning over. And then my eyes, I'll just, you know, like instantly light up my face. Jobsworth, of course, my sincerest apologies, my old friend. How have you been? I've been, uh, I've been better. The uh, rider looks down from his unicorn. And... Yes, yes, thank you. V very well done. And with that, the unicorn and the elf make their haughty way back to the circle around the tents. All right, well, if you would... Uh... Please come with me, Mr. Jobsworth. I believe it would be Absolutely. best to be retired. Good to see you, sir. I'll tell you, it's been quite a trip. You look like you've done well for yourself. It's been a pleasant enough time, I suppose. And so you've managed to overthrow your contract autumn then, have you? My what? Your contract, sir, to autumn. You are... You were a warlock sworn to serve the ragged lady of Bailey Mina. Nari. Is this coming back? Mm, roll wisdom save. 
Uh, that is a 16 total. That'll do. Yes, 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 you are. You did the ragged lady. Of course, the, uh, the ragged lady. Starkweather and Fair herself. Yes, of course, it's, it's coming back to you. But really, that's, it seems like <sighs> you're the warlock of Kern. None may enchant or bewitch you. <laughs> right? So what's happening here? If he's not bewitching you, then this, this can't be the truth. I believe you may be mistaken about a few things. Not I. Your name is Nari Hulu. Nari Thistle Hulu. And you were born in the Cheapside Laundries of Bailey Mina. Or my name isn't Owen Jobsworth. This is all a bit much to take in. Yeah, um, you might want to make a constitution save at this point. Nari? Have a lot worse at that. I still got a 15. As he says this, you suddenly feel yourself lose about, you know, 15 pounds of good lean muscle and uh, uh, two inches of height and that luster, that, that beautiful copper luster out of your hair and perfectly manicured beard. For a second, you're... You've got like these thin clerical fingers and not the sword wielding fingers that you've used lately to uh, cast the spells of vengeance on the fleeing wild bogeyman. I'll give a little bit of a stretch and like roll my shoulders a little and my neck. Ooh, been carrying some baggage lately. So it would seem, listen, Nari, there is no time. For as much as I'd love to stay and partake of the company, this is dangerous. We need to get back to herself. She's waiting. Indeed. And I don't recall her being the most patient of ladies. Indeed not. So we should depart at once. If you could grab a pack or something, I'll go hide out by the Jakes or meet me there. And there's a, you know, a look in his face like, you know, you know, like he's, he's just super glad. It's a big relief, right? He's looked, he looks like a man who's been carrying a bunch of worry, but he's got a ray of hope now, you know, and he squares up and goes, oh, and if you wouldn't mind, I haven't eaten in a few days. Oh, my sincerest apologies. I hadn't even considered. No, I will. I can't really do this with the, yeah, I'll just sort of clap and make the, uh, the appropriate Servant summoning noises. Speaking of clapping, you clap your hands together and there is a gonging at the same time, along with an accompaniment of music. The frisson of, of that sort of laughter you hear at uh, the bar when everybody's having just too good of a time. With that, there's a flap of canvas and a couple of, you know, lesser boggarts come wandering around to the sound of you clapping your hands and uh, come over. Yes, yes, my lord. Refreshments for my guest, please. That won't, sir. And away they bustle, but uh, out of behind them, out of the tent, comes Galloglass himself. And, uh, you know, he stands up. Oh, he's about 15 feet tall tonight. He's been telling stories and drinking and playing poker like he does, you see. 
And apparently you've been missed because he stands up. He looks around. He fixes his eye on. He goes, hey, Kern. My lord. How are you, pal? I missed you. Quite well, sir. Just dealing up with some last-minute business. Who's this? An old friend of mine. Another friend? I don't remember you mentioning any other friends. I'm kind of jealous. Oh, he's a friend from quite some time ago, sir. From my, uh, from my distant past. Barely remembered. My name is, is Jobsworth, your grace, and it's my... Fuck off, Jobsworth. You know, friend and Nari, if you ain't been around in all these years, I'm his friend, all right? I've looked after him. I tell you, you don't need your kind. Fucking get out of here before I move you. Oh, yes. At once, your grace. I'm, can you see that as he does this, like, low bow, um, there's the like a shimmer, just the slightest push of glamour in his clothes becomes slightly more presentable. But when he stands up, you see, like, his features have all kind of become less distinct. His eyes are bigger and black and, you know, no irises or pupils. And oh, I fucking knew it. A changeling. And with that, Galloglass just reaches down and seizes this Jobsworth guy completely around the torso. And with one heave of his mighty arm, sends this humanoid figure about 5'10", spinning end for end, pinwheeling out over the tops of the snow-covered pines of winter. Or he just vanishes with a thud. There. That takes care of him. You gonna come drinking? It's time to play some poker. Shall I deal? What a good idea. Hello, Ziva. Hello. So, it's a couple of days after you and Calder fixed the mirror. And while you all had such good steam, you know, you, you fixed the mirror and then you were off to the archive and you're studying and studying and studying and studying. And then Zul Grubwilb showed you that snuff flick, which frankly hasn't made sleeping very easy. Ugh, I never get nightmares. This is so weird. It was just, well, the last thing you saw before you opened your eyes was a third-person view of you being thrown into that same pyre. As Ziva jumps up out of her bed, the, the fur blanket on top of it uh, suddenly jumps up as well, startled awake. Uh, there's a burst of tentacles, and then uh, Sia kind of pulls herself into the purse-sized blob of creature that she is and blinks uh, six bleary red eyes at you. Um, Primus steps out from the corner. Oh, I had a nightmare. Mm. I need a hug. Well, Sia helps you to that. She's the one with all the arms after all. And uh, as as Primus goes and (laughs) opens up the window and then Unlocks your bedroom door with, from within, and all of the ghosts are standing on the other side of your bedroom door, which, you know, as it swings open, we see the edge of that door is painted in intricate glyphs, wards against intrusion. I mean, you need some privacy, right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I really don't like them watching me when I sleep. Hey, um, guys, everything okay? And after they see that you've woken and that everything's all right, they just kind of drift off about their own way and, you know, do their thing. But um, Primus goes trudging out and stomps along and you can hear him go off to the kitchen of your apartment above the parlor. And, you know, there's some rattling. And then a few minutes later, he goes walking back, back down the uh, hall towards the bathroom. And then you hear the tub running and, uh, He's such a good boy. You wake up and forget that your forearms are bandaged from wrist to the elbow. Um, you sit up and like the, there's that, that momentary twinge of just the pain of it. And it, it makes you wince. And you look and you see that your bandages have spotted through. It took a lot to paint those glyphs. And, you know, like the, the little cuts you had to make to bleed, they'll heal up without much issue or scar. But it makes things a little bit awkward. So you gingerly get up and, you know, Sia clings to your shoulders. And as you rise from the bed in your long black negligee, Sia drapes to the floor like a fur robe, cuddles all around you. And you make your Morticia Adams looking way down to the lavatory, where, as is decent and traditional, the camera stops at the door. Before we cut, we hear Ziva mumbling and reaching out to see one of Sia's tentacles, hands her the amethyst wand which she sticks into her hair that then braids itself. There's some noises like washing and scrubbing and that sort of thing. Maybe some jackhammering, who knows? <laughs> Ziva comes out of the bath dressed for another day of ritual casting, which means like she's wearing a work shirt and work trousers and, uh, you know, comfortable, but heavy, hard working shoes. Um, the sleeves of her work shirt are rolled up to just above her elbows because, you know, like it's uncomfortable to wear it over your bandages. Uh, but her fingers are nice and nimble. Her hair is not beehives, but a thick plate that runs down her back to end in a tassel held by a bead about the middle of her thighs. Ziva walks down the hall with purpose, and then she hooks a left and goes back out into her ritual room, where Primus is waiting, holding the door. Within, all of the incense is lit. The candles have been burning. The temperature is perfect. Uh, casting a quick glance around, there are a dozen mirrors in a dozen magic circles, all painted with ink tinged with your own blood that is all still moist. The humidity is perfect. The timing is right. It's hit you just in that edge, too. You are dizzy and your body is in a little bit of distress, which is kind of what necromancy likes best. You know, the reason the French call it le petit mal, right? Exactly. And so, like, you're close. You're so fucking close. And you're just riding that edge, you know, as you sit yourself in the 13th circle into the lotus position. After muttering a few words, you open your eyes, which are all purple, and you feel the floor fall away so that the tassel of your braid almost brushes the floorboards beneath. You cast your gaze to one mirror after another, after another, after another. And there's a pause, Siva. As there always is when the worlds sink, you reach out across the etheric borders and... She thinks about all of those times that 
Nari came to find her when she was hurt or lost or scared or when he helped her and thinks of all of those times when they found each other just trying to focus on finding him. Kern! It is a late night, as always. The poker was played, money was lost, good times were had, the songs played, everybody laughed, the beers were drunk, good times were had, just like every night. And just like every night, you're going to shave. And so the basin is ready, and you are alone as you stare into the mirror at your handsome features with your lovely copper red hair and your flashing eyes. Flashing eyes that flash purple. Wait, but you don't, you don't have purple eyes or silver skin or feminine features for that matter. What the hell is going on? Holding your razor in your hand, you are confronted with an image of a familiar yet strange purple-haired, purple-eyed, silver-skinned, half-elven woman who looks through the mirror at you and says, Wait, I'm so a little dizzy. Oh my god, it is you! Nari, it took me so long to find you. I'm sitting there holding a uh, straight razor with my face half a bunch lathered up. I'm sort of partway through getting started shaving and I'm like mid gesture of it. Sort of looking uh, like you just caught me literally at my ablutions. (laughs) Well, this is awkward. Okay, look, I don't have, I don't know how much time I have, but we are coming for you, okay? I'm sorry? We're coming to get you. Don't worry. Wisdom save, Nari. (laughs) That's a natural (laughs) one. More witchery. However, there is a, there, there is a, something that you notice the mirror appears to be less a mirror now than a hole in the sky. If you are careful, you can catch this charlatan out. Hand her to the Duke for justice. You could probably snatch her right through the mirror, right through this hole. This. I mean, you know my trick, right? <laughs> Sorry, just looking this up. Oh, yeah, okay. That is a third. <laughs> she has an AC of 12. Okay, so Ziva, you're sitting there floating in Lotus with when your eyes open as you see Nari in the mirror and like seen from outside. She's uh, like the, the, see, the camera now cuts to a side view of Ziva floating 10 inches off the floor with the tassel of her hair going tick, tock, tick, tock behind her. As she looks into the mirror, she leans a little bit forward to see if Nari can still hear her. Her lovely violet eyes narrow somewhat, and then, still floating in lotus, Ziva's head slumps forward. Ziva, you find yourself in a gentleman's dressing room. Um, Your brother is naked to the waist, and uh, you're lying on your back on the floor, wondering what the hell is going on. It smells like sandalwood and patchouli in here. Ow! What? You don't have to hurt me. What is the meaning of this intrusion? What are you talking about? Oh my god. Nari. Ugh. 
She just stands up, brushes herself off, looks around. If you could do that, why didn't you just come back? We've been looking for you for weeks. Come back? What are you on about? Duh. Home. Your mom kind of misses you. I'm really running out of excuses as to why you're not coming to dinner. Mom, Nari, make that save, buddy. Okay, that's quite a bit better. That's uh, 20, but not a natural. Okay, it comes flooding back. Jobsworth again. Oh, fuck. Gallo Glass killed Jobsworth. Oh, my God, and I will rush up and get her to her feet. Yeah, this is Ziva. Ziva's here. She's come for you. At last. Oh, my God, I am so sorry. My mind has been wandering quite a distance, it would seem. Yeah. Uh, okay. So... We need to get you out of here. We're like, I don't know how, but we're trying. I don't know what you did. Talk. Well, let's get you back out of here first. I guess back in you go. Wait. <laughs> a gesture to the mirror. She gives, she gives him a big hug. I'm coming for you, okay? We have a plan. Just be ready. The camera switches to outside where her rocking ponytail dips down, down. Tick. Talk. Tick. The ponytail braid barely misses the floorboards. Talk. And as it swings back, the hair makes contact and Ziva's essence is pulled back through the mirror portal to land back in her flesh with a jolt. Um, the spell is broken. All of the mirrors crack. All of the candles go out. And Ziva, you land with a hard thump on your ass on the floor. Oh. Poor Nari. She's kind of torn. She's glad that she got to see Nari, that he's okay. Seemingly okay, but clearly something's not right with his memory. So she's very anxious about trying to get back there. I think her mind is sort of reeling at this point with all of the different options. Kapling, 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 kapling. Your mirror is going off. Where the hell is that thing? God, it's annoying when it's not in your purse. Kapling, kapling. It's in the kitchen. Upstairs. You get it finally after like 13 kerplings and uh, open it with a bit of annoyance. And there on the other side is the amorphous face of your paramour, Zulgrubwelp. Hello, darling. Oh, hi, baby. I've missed you so. Yeah, I had a bad day. Oh, I Come by at once. I'll make you tea and crackers. Okay. Some of those sandwiches which you love so dearly, my love. I'm sorry I left you. I was summoned, you see, most importantly. But I have some wonderful stories of the West Rim. You won't believe it. I've taken some photographs. Okay. Come by at once. Can't wait. 
to the warlock. Nari, this is twice in a day. You've forgotten yourself. You, you can't do this. You, you have to go find Jobsworth. You have to go save him at least, right? It's become increasingly obvious that I am not being messed with. I have been messed with. Yes, because man, you could really use a massage and, you know, somebody else to finish his shave. What a day. <laughs> and they brought wine and all the drugs. Oh, good. Of course they brought wine. That's how they probably work it. Yes, and not a minute too soon. Make a will save. 19 plus 4, so 23. And one of these delicious young fae shimmers from appeal to appeal as she crosses your tent with a goblet of wine. She holds it up to you and like, you know, she's like, drink, my lord, you seem quite thirsty. And you're not thirsty, because as you catch the wine, there's a sheen on it. I'm feeling unwell at the moment. Leave me. Sir, surely a massage would make you feel better. And she gestures to this massage table, which has suddenly always been set up in that corner of the tent. I'll get the oils. And she gestures to her companion, who uh, opens up a crate of... You know, suddenly from nowhere, a crate of scented oils. I believe the Duke would be more receptive. As I said, leave me. As you wish. And with that, they pack up and leave. And uh, as you exhale a breath, O oh Warlock of Kern, you are no longer six foot two and 210 handsome movie star pounds. You are instead in your own skin with your clothes not quite fitting. You've got to go save Jobsworth, man. There's nothing else for it. Absolutely. That's my household. Like, how do you do that, though? Like, okay, so you've sent the harlots away. Well, I guess, uh, scan the tent. What do I have for, uh, my traveling equipment, weapons, my, my general badassery all gear? Of, all of your stuff is to hand. All right. Well, I'll start gearing up. I'll, I'll Give my, uh, how's, how's my beard, actually? I'm just going to, I guess, uh, magically just get that off. You go to magic it, and uh, you're kind of just thinking how much nicer your face would look if it were shorn, and then it is shorn. Like, all right, enough of this uh, yeah. shovel chin. And, you know, I'll do a complete once over, get myself back to my, uh, yeah, just, just get myself uh, back to normal. Yeah, I'll keep a few of the tweaks because some of them, some of them work. I want my Weasley look back. More like regular Nari, courtroom Nari. Street hustler Nari. Slick that hair back, darken it up, you know, tie it, in a, tie it at the nape of your neck and off you go. And uh, so you're all geared up and you're stepping out. And as you leave the flaps of your tent, there's gallow glass waiting outside. Hey, buddy. My lord. Where are you going? I'm not feeling myself. I feel I, I need a stroll. Yeah, I'll go with you. Oh, I wouldn't trouble yourself, sir. It's no trouble, I insist. I mean, what are friends for? Very good, sir. So listen, I gotta say, we've had some adventures, ain't we? Some delightful romps. 
It's been a good time. The music is always good. The times are always good. Everybody's having fun when Gallo Glass and Kern are around. We do slay a, a, a grand party ahead of us. Yes, we do make quite a noise. But what would happen if that were to change? I can't imagine it. Who would help me on my way to chase this wild boogeyman, this nemesis of ours? Ours, Kern. Ours. What would Galloglass be without Kern? My greatest fear is that somebody will turn your heart against me. Do you see this? I could only imagine, sir. And I've been good to you, Nari. You have, sir. What do you need other friends for? Everyone needs as many friends as they can get. Yeah, and I get all the friends for both of us. Make a will save, please. Or, sorry, a wisdom save, please. Since we're not playing third edition anymore, let's make a wisdom save instead of a will save. See, now it's a natural 20. There is a gigantic clamor which comes over you, and it weighs you down, and the warlock of Kern is fighting from within you to get out. You can feel that persona, that that person that you are, that is you but isn't you, as, as, as you as any of you is, whoever you are, whenever you're that person. You hold him back for a minute, although, as you see, Gallo glasses got these great big beady eyes and he narrows them at you and his shoulders hunch over as he drops this. Ain't we friends? Nari, what do you need other friends for? Are you sure of that? And you feel the force of his personality come over you, but you're, you're too wily for that. Galloglass peers at you, and for a moment, Nari, you are facing an ogre, and your memory goes to what happened to those 17 goblins when they got in the ring with Carlson. Oh, yeah, these guys spread their enemies like jam. And then, you know, you see him, like, he's kind of bunched up and hunching over you, like... Right, Kern? And uh, he looks at you... And you shift your features back so your head's your hair's a little redder, and you get a little bit you, you swell up a little bigger. And he goes, yeah, I thought so. Listen, why don't you sleep it off? I believe I'll take a moment of fresh air, and then I think you're right, sir. Just remember, things are good, and they always will be. And so the ogre turns and strides away, and as he goes. You can see behind him, it's, it's been late at night, like I said. Behind him, the dawn is, you know, just starting to pink the sky. It's spring, after all, and the sun is rising earlier. But uh, as the ogre leaves, yeah, he walks away and just shoves the trees out of his way. There's a memory that just flashes. And there's, like, I mean, there's no way that this could be a memory of yours, can it? You're from Kern. That dream you've been having lately, though, that dream of that imaginary city, Bailey Mina, where you saw a pit fighter drop an ogre just like him in no time at all. She was made of fire, and she was one of the most amazing people you'd ever seen. But nobody exists like that. Not here. Curiouser and curiouser. You take a a deep breath and then remember, like, (sighs) ah. Will a wisdom save? 
that is a 17. Suddenly there is a sound of trumpets from back at the camp and you forget what you were looking for. You dash back with all alacrity and deal with the bandits beside your friend and patron, Duke Gallo Glass of Kerr. I try to say goodbye and I choke. I try to walk away and I stumble. Though I try to hide it, it's clear. My world crumbles when we open our next scene at Porterhouse's Shipping and Receiving Company, where, in an auxiliary warehouse, we see a large mirror frame hanging from chain falls, fastened to the rafters above. Beneath this and off to the side, on a sheet of mithril lace tarpaulin, sits a shining rectangle of glass. And around this glass, pacing, hemming, and hawing, is the half-elven form of Locke Calder. This particular big room of the warehouse is uh, empty, but for you and your mirror experiment. Um, this sign comes in from the high windows around the top of the wall. Lovely. So I'll uh, take a look around and uh, make sure I have everything I need. And then I'll uh, call over Nigel. Uh, Nigel, uh, please uh, lock up. And ensure I'm not disturbed until I let you know that I'm finished here. Very good, sir. Uh, have it done at once. And this old Nigel goes, uh, you know, stomping away. He's the Nigel who lost a foot in a in a bear trap in the sewers. Oh, five years ago. But uh, rallied. He was a young Nigel at the time. But time does march on, you know. And uh, he's, he's since become a favorite. He's a whiz in the garden and occasionally helps you with the thomic experimentation end of things. He's the one who keeps planting the posts that Timote has been destroying with his, well, his, his magic so practice. So once he uh, exits call it the room and closes the big double doors and I hear it click. Um, and knowing that the high windows, I take a quick look up, uh, make sure there's a, uh, Nothing up there. Actually, are there curtains here for the windows? Or shutters? Uh, they're like 20 feet up and they're dirty. Like the inside of a warehouse dirty. They're just like, they're basically, they're just lit panels of glass. Perfect. That's what they are. All right. Well, in that case, I'm going to turn off my belt and get comfy to get some proper work done. Okay. So you give the buckle a half turn witter shins and then tap the circle in the center of the buckle it clicks and with that there is a hiss and the belt visibly relaxes from around your waist um it's a good thing too because you know it, it lets off and is instantly shoved up like two inches as your trousers completely let go of their structure and your tail uh, just collapses out of the extra, extra dimensional space into which the magic had shunted it. Your cervical vertebrae lengthen and stretch and split and you finally stretch your long neck out as your shovel-sized head, you know, tilts at an angle that mammalian bones just don't reach. Um, your fingers likewise lengthen to a proper dexterous length and uh, grow the right number of knuckles. There's a flex as you hunch over. It's You're getting old enough that uh, bipedal movement is a 
you know, it's a good thing you have such a, a heavy tail or the balance would be getting awkward. But, uh, you know, as it is, you kick off your kick off the uncomfortable boots and uh, keep the jacket on because it's well, it's nice and warm and enchanted to be so in these chilly months. So uh, it, however, expands to fit your physique where it needs to and uh, stays close where it doesn't. Take a deep breath. Uh, crack my neck. Roll my shoulders. Crack my knuckles. I wave my little. I wave my hand up uh, off to the side a little bit, and uh, with a cantrip, I play some lovely opera quietly in the background, and then I get to work. Well, would you like Estamondine, Venadine, Maravian? What kind of opera? Paraduin is a little bombastic oh. for the move for the moment, and uh, Adastrin might be a little ethereal. But uh, I mean, what are you? What are you about? Shall I recommend, or do you have anything in particular? Uh, you're right that I, I don't want the the pomp and circumstance and the heavy handedness of uh, imperial opera today. So something something from the north, something cheerful, quiet, and uh, nothing that'll distract too much from from the, the very hard thinking I'm about to do. Ooh, like a, maybe something skaldic. Yes, I think that's just the thing. In fact, absolutely, Skaldic, because I think I need to have a consult. Very good. So you, with the wave of your hand, there is the uh, fluttering of 200,000 scales. You know, um, there's four or five old, old worms in this concert hall to hear this impresario uh, who's about to uh, like lay this aria. This is one of your favorite pieces. And uh, yeah, you could have cut the scale flutter off, but you know, it's worth the applause even before he begin. As the music starts, it's super low, like really well below any sort of mammalian hearing bones of the earth style. Right. And it, it just really starts low. And with that, you draw the cookery from its sheath and, you know, as you look through it, it's that filigree blade. You hold it in front of your eyes and the vision of your grandfather coiled round and round the room. His titanic head rears up, focuses on you with basketball-sized eyes. Oh, hello. Good afternoon, grandfather. I trust you well. The illusion is firm, and so you put the knife away. The image remains in the... Uh, Aria starts to climb up to something approaching a audible level for small folk. Yes, I'm uh, very well. I'm impressed with your progress. How is your work in the cabochon coming? Well, it's not going as well as hoped, but it's not completely stalled either. Um, the mirror was uh, quite a difficult task, and uh, I must say I'm benefiting greatly from the wisdom and uh, experience of Ziva. She is, uh, she's much more than she seems, is uh, a lesson anyone would be wise to learn. Wizards are insightful, it's true. However, they lack true genius. To, they're too hidebound, you see. Married to tradition, this way and then this way. Who's to say those are the only two ways? Yes, I... I see what you mean. 
However, I'm, I must admit, for myself, I rarely seem to think of more than one way, at least in terms of how to use the, the magic at my disposal. But I do see that how I, what I do with that magic is, well, it's a very different sort of thing than what Ziva does. Yet the sort of magic that you can master, Calder, can be used by anyone. You are a true hero of the people. She might be a great example. But you, my friend, you're doing more for them with every device that you build than she could do in a lifetime of spells. Remember that. Wizards, jealous, they don't share their power. We, we help the small become mighty. Well, Grandfather, your opinion of wizards might be just as dusty as your knife, but we can discuss that some other time. Let's take a look at this picture frame, shall we? Yes, let's. What have we here? Eldwood, by the look of it. Yes, quite. Eldwood, unlocked. The frame itself seems in sufficient physical condition to accept the mirror again. However, uh, by all signs, uh, nothing will come of it yet. Um, we have some sense of what we need to uh, solve the puzzle of the lock. Uh, but I don't think we have all the pieces yet. And even if we did, um, the question of how uh, is not clear at all. Well, have you brought your thermo-incabulator? Um, I did, but... Uh, have uh, you not for restored this, it I... to any sort of function? Do you think we could... Oh, oh yes, the, the thermo-incabulator is working quite well. In fact, I have... Uh, some uh, some work that I'm planning on doing with it quite soon that I think it'll be quite handy. But how do you propose we use it here? I, I, I have it just simply because uh, it was with the other the other tools. I hadn't even considered using it here. Uh, go retrieve it from your pouch and um, a number five degonculator. As you say, I go off and. Go to my uh, tools, a large cloth, um, sh uh, more a heavy canvas sheet with pockets and hooks and all kinds of things so I can bring these tools around and none of them are going to And you're tuning, Fox. In its place. All, all, all of them? The mid-range. And there we go. Uh, we pick up the thumb on calculator, uh, the, the, the number five to calculator. I also get the number four and the number six, just in case, and the mid-range uh, um, tuning forks. And after a series of instructions where there's some cursing and grumbling on both of your behalves, you take your newly tuned Thalmo encabulator and aim it at the wood of the mirror frame. I straight up roll 20 in our count. All right, well, this is the threshold of a dimensional lock. It needs the opening mechanism and the key to be complete. But wherever it's set, when complete, if opened, it will pierce a barrier into the dimension that it resonates with. Ah, I see. A dimensional lock. Very potent, very ancient magic. The first divergence from pure spellcraft into artifice. Oh, really? Note the ancient joinery. 
Yes, I had noticed. It's a, it isn't any sort of joinery I've seen before. It seems somewhat, uh, to my eye, overwrought and more complex than needed, but... Uh, hmm, that's because this craftsman was more carpenter than magician. That which they lacked in one field, they made up for in the other. I suspect this person came late to magic, but was a lifelong woodworker. Thus, the filigree overordness. Ah, I see, I see. Can we divine the uh, destination of this portal? Not without opening it, unfortunately. And it appears you're missing a piece. Really? Yes, well, it's plain as day. Full of the thomic uh, line, the small capillaries and confluences, and you'll see they converge around a big empty spot. Well then, uh, out of my pocket, a little tiny waistcoat pocket uh, on the front of my jacket, I'll fish out a monocle and kind of mutter to myself, no, no, not that one, so it's just too small, so don't be, ah, ha, ha. and then, and then I'll, I'll hold it up, not over my eye, but in front of my eye, and I'll just <sighs> breathe, detect magic through it, and I'll start to scan over uh, the frame until I, until I see what he's talking about. There's a, a prickle, a tiny little blue arcs between the scales on your knuckles as the device charges up and as you fit it into your eye socket underneath your underneath your brow ridge it uh, slides in behind your scales with a comfortable click oh yes i see now oh. hmm. surprised i missed that it's easy if you're not looking in the right spot to see if you were looking at this as um some mortal artifice, say, you wouldn't be looking deep enough. You wouldn't be looking at the patterns of the magic which makes it up. You'd be looking at the components themselves. Easy mistake to make. You're young yet. You've time. That's very kind of you. So this gap here, this, uh, this requires some sort of... Uh, um, so this gap here, this uh, requires some sort of uh, etheric bridging, yes? It requires a piece, I would think. Okay, so looking at this piece now, it is roughly shaped like uh, an abbreviated comma almost, right? As I look at it, does this feel like the kind of thing I could fabricate? Or do we need to find this? You rolled a 20 on your arcana, so I'll let that ride for this scene. And say that one of the most remarkable things about the joinery, although it is a tad overwrought, is that this whole frame seems to be made from one piece of Eldwood. Grandfather, is it just me, or is this, is this frame, is this frame a single piece of Eldwood? That seems both quite curious and harder than it needs to be, so I can only assume this is quite significant uh, as to its magic. A sympathy, yes, quite. Uh, well, it's not seamless, obviously, but all of these pieces were made from the same tree, I would under... Yes, it does all appear to be from the same place. Well, then, that means that we have to find or make a luck 
from? The same, perhaps? I don't know. Fairies, you see, were never my strong suit, and this... This, uh, is strong with fairy magic. Oh, that's, that's not surprising, considering where we found it. Uh, but I also have uh, the same ignorance. Uh, in fact, it's one of the things that, uh, that Ziva's been quite helpful with. Um, well, at a minimum, I think that we could attempt to uh, provide the Aetheric bridging uh, with a little artifice made from... Um, well, as a minimum, I think that we could use this... Uh, we could uh, fabricate uh, a small artifice using uh, uh, Elbwood to uh, to provide this etheric bridging. But uh, I have the sense that if we could find the actual tree this came from, this would be highly beneficial. But I'm not sure if that's even... Well, maybe that's just madness. I don't know how to find one tree. There's a moment where you consider for a second all of the good money you had to spend to get the pieces of this mirror from the dumps all over Bailey Mina. And then wonder how much it would cost to get one of those mongrel bastards to pick one particular tree out of all of the billions of trees in the swamps to the south. Like, I mean, they, they weren't even that spot on when they were in the city. You know, Grandfather, I'm loathe even consider it, but I wonder if the dustman might be able to help here, but, uh, ugh. Grandfather, would you say that the wood in this frame is dead? No, certainly not. Once enchanted, Elwood is uh, eternally alive. This is why it was such uh, desirable material. Oh, I see. I see, I see. Well, I think perhaps we should ask it where its tree is. And how do you propose to do that? Oh, I, I haven't the foggiest yet. I was really hoping that would be your part of this. Well, I mean, we could try to jump that and pop the lock, couldn't we? There's got to be more than one way to just do this. If there's one lock, this door is useless. And uh, it represents, to me, a, a significant investment of magic and time. So, there's either the lock is about, as is the key, or there's a way to pop it. Calder's thinking deeply. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm ready to try that. It's, uh, well, it, it doesn't seem to be the sturdiest of... Uh, of artifice, uh, and as far as I know, this is our only portal to Nari. I'm, I'm worried that if we force things, we may lose it. Surely he must have left the lock or the key somewhere in his effects. One of his associates, uh, one of his colleagues must have access to one of his... It, it must be somewhere. In my experience, no man goes missing with all of his most important things on his person. Oh, yes. Perhaps perhaps the solution isn't magical at all. Perhaps it's as simple as returning to his apartment. Warner's grandfather, I'm going to put you away now. I'm going to, uh, to go off and uh, find Erebet. And uh, he, I, and perhaps Timotei will go have a look. 
and as Calder turns his back on the illusion of his ancestor, it returns to the knife which Calder wears in the small of his back. Presently, the splendor falls, and though Calder is peripherally aware of this in the mirror which lies on the sheet of tarpaulin on the floor, his real attention is focused on the mirror which hangs from the chain falls, suspended from the rafters above. Withdrawing another of his monocles, he peers through that, and then changes his angle on the frame. And as the camera lifts up and away, the aria reaches its crescendo until the echoing reverberation of the note shakes the room and the camera fades to black. Across the ancient land, rising from the misty veil, comes the call of adventure. The only question is, will you answer? Coming on April 25th and 26th, 2020, the Ragnarok Gaming Experience. Ragnarok is a gaming convention held in southern Ontario, hosted at the legendary Kitchener Doubletree Hotel. Don't miss out on the best weekend in gaming you'll ever have. Board games, RPGs, trading card games, LARPs, tabletop miniatures vendors, and so much more. Including special appearance by the Runelanders. Come out and meet cast members of your favorite actual play 5th Ed D&D podcast and get to experience the city of Bailey Mina for yourself with their very first convention adventure ever. All of this for the low advanced price of $20 Canadian each day, or $35 for a weekend pass. Children 12 and under, free. Don't miss the Ragnarok gaming experience. Get your tickets now at ragnarokxp.ca. Game like the world is ending. Now, by the time we get back to it, it is a couple of days later. All of Primus's clothes and his wig and his mask are off and folded and stacked neatly on the work table in Ziva's workshop while he lays on the autopsy table. From above, he is well lit. Ziva is uh, tending to all the little minor nicks and abrasions and scuffs that have gone into his skin and uh, applies the tanning agents. And um, from above, he appears as like a linebacker sort. His body is completely hairless. No eyebrows, no eyelashes, anything like that. His uh, eyes have been removed and replaced with purple glass. And his mouth is held together with a wide strip of embroidery. There is another strip of embroidery just like this, a rectangular, which covers the seam where Primus's wedding tackle had been. When your zombie is a fixture, you don't need things as gauche as big, thick, black industrial stitches. That's fine. This was also removed prior to sale. It made it easier to install the embalming port there anyway. (laughs) 
where at his at his groin chakra there is like a an embalming port. It looks like a receptacle for the old style headphones, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Big fat plug. And uh, this is attached to a long tube, which pumps various preservatives and plasticizers and uh, rejuvenators throughout the corpse of Primus. Um, As well, Ziva has her hair all back in a bun. She's wearing like next to no makeup. Her glasses are on with all the various lenses and focusers and things that she uses for fine nerve work and things like that. And uh, she has in her hand like a five-pound syringe, which uh, appears to be full of pureed meat. She takes the she takes this syringe, sets it down on the autopsy table next to the prone Primus, who's making these noises, and then uh, hangs the syringe by its plunger on a hook after attaching it to the tube that goes down the zombie's nose. The liquid drains out, and Primus is fed. She checks the embalming apparatus. Everything is as it's, it seems to be pretty good. All that's left now is to wait for the feeding to finish, uh, the embalmers to clean out. You can unhook them, you can get dressed, and you can get back to work with crushing these numbers. She's going to lean back against the wall for a minute and just watch, kind of zone out. She's just going to have, I think, a very brief moment of terror that he's never coming back. As we see Ziva lean on the autopsy table, she takes a long sigh, and the camera pulls out. You can see uh, Ziva and Primus are in dim focus in the background. And in sharp focus in the foreground is a bell jar, in which is a twig and a couple of leaves, and stuck to the side of which is a snail about the length and size of a banana slug. This snail is notable because it has a wooden shell, a wooden shell made of eldwood. This is not the only curious thing about it. On this shell, there is a pattern which appears to be a twisted kind of keyhole. The focus returns to Ziva, who has tilted her head up and is looking into the distance in the direction of the camera with her one big purple eye, which we now see gain focus on what must be the snail. Her agile mind does the math. If the mirror is a door and the missing part, well now, it's about the size of that snail shell. Oh my god. It was like right there. Is right there. It's oh, I am so glad I kept that little guy. Ah okay. I think I think that's it. I think that's it. And she kind of looks down at Primus. Um and uh rubs his bald head. And checks on the status of it, sees if she has a minute to go and 
he's got another three minutes before this syringe drains. She runs over and, and picks up the jar and, and looks at the snail. It's a snail, all right. Stuck to the side of the glass. Got a knot, an Eldwood knot for a shell. And on that shell is the sign of a twisted keyhole. You, you are that little key, aren't you? Okay. I have to get a message to Calder right now. Well, there's a ding in your pocket. When you open the round device that is known as a spell phone, um, there's a message waiting from Ziva. So you open it up. And in the air in front of you, in beautiful, flowing, elegant, draconic script, is the message which says, I found the key with a whole bunch of exclamation marks. Well then. And off I go to Ziva's. Post-fucking-haste. All right. You hire a cab and head, across, head off across town. Arabet. The little compact mirror that you keep forgetting is in your pocket makes a blinking sound. What the bother? I take a look at the little compact mirror. 14 new messages. Wholly unpopular. I look at the last one. It's Ziva. Ziva's texts tend to take you five minutes just to figure out. So, uh... Heck with it, I'll just go to wherever she... Oh, she'll be at her parlor. I'll head there. You snap the mirror shut, put it back in your pocket, and go over to Ziva's to see what she's about. Ziva's parlor is a tall, thin, sober Rodriguan affair. Now, the style was very modern about a century ago. Nowadays, it just... speaks of old-timey tradition. It's tall, with a deep footprint, rather than a broad one. And you go up, and there's a, a sign, this uh, thomo-technical marvel that lights up, and it's uh, got these hologlyphic images that look different depending on the angle that you're at. And it's uh, Madame Ziva's post-mortal services and funeral parlor. Jeez, this place is really looking good. Really professional. It's got a great big lead paint or lead glass, multi-paned window. You know the kind, the kind where snow will collect in the corners of the panes, and uh, the dra the drapes are pulled back. You can see through the window that inside there's a tasteful sitting room, and uh, some stairs that go up to the front door. There is also a basement door underneath the front stairs. You suspect, knowing the general layout of these buildings. There would also be a basement door from the alley and behind. I'll walk up to the front door and knock. The door opens. And it's that big dude that Ziva's been around lately. Well, the zombie. Let's not bullshit. You know he's a zombie. Mm. Take me to Ziva, please. The zombie spins on its heel, turns around, and uh, as it does, in the crack between the wig and the mask it wears, a fly, a house fly, wiggles out and flies on out the door. 
Mm. It leads you back through the special rooms, or sorry, through the sitting rooms, into the receiving and ceremonial chambers, and then finally into the garage out back, which, if you've never been to Ziva's garage, and, uh, well, you've been to the parlor, but never to the garage. It's uh, it's well lit. It's, um, especially now, you know, it's got a, a row of windows around the top of the wall, just under the edge of the roof, you know? There's a complete ring of glass between the top of the wall and the roof. Ziva, are you in here? Oh, good. You found me. Yeah. Um, come on in. Don't worry, there's no bodies in here right now. Um, this guy, he's Primus, right? Oh, yeah. Have you not met him yet? I've met him. I just, uh, he, his head needs a little sewing up. What? Primus holds one wrist with the other hand and kind of takes its neck. As she goes over and sort of um she stands on her toes next to him to to try and look at his neck but she can't quite reach so she goes and gets a stool and stands on it and then looks in his neck primus actually widens its stance once once ziva gets the stool so that she won't have to tippy toe on top of the stool you're so cute and she <laughs> opens uh she kind of lifts the um the mask a little bit so she can see two house flies buzz out in your face oh grody oh my god why didn't you tell me this was happening okay i'm sorry buddy oh, he's being such a boy she pats him on the back. Come on. And she uh, gets him to sit up on the, um, to lay down on the, on the, um, the table, the sort of metal, the, everything is in this room is extremely sterile looking. Uh, she gets him to lay down on the table. I think Victorian era educational operating theater We've all seen those, you know, like where the uh, doctor candidates are standing around while the lecturer at the university has a cadaver on the slab and is educating them in their various things, right? That, but without the seating, more like the, uh, you know, just like the rich wood and uh, white tile all over the place. As mentioned, the place is painstakingly clean. There is an antiseptic smell about it. Not the whiff of the death and rot that you'd expect, but like everything in here is perfectly clean. Oh, there's no death, uh, death rot around Ziva. That's for sure. No, I hate that. Ugh. And I mean, like I learned necromancy in the swamp. You have never seen like, I swear, like, Everything in the swamp moves in in like a second. This like literally the second something is dead. There is something growing in it or on it. 
So like that's why you I know. stay in the city. <laughs> <laughs> I was I totally grew up in the city when I I was a mess when I got to the <laughs> jungle. I was just like, ew, oh my God, freaking out all the time. It was hilarious. You would have laughed your ass off at me. Anyway, I actually have something super important to show you. For sure, for sure. I figured that from your text. Oh, right. Okay. Um, um, just now, now that you've had a look, you've, you've pried the, uh, you pried the wig back and the mask up. There's uh it's an ear thing. Um, the fill the screen. Normally you have like a fine mesh screen that you fit into the ear. It must come off because there's flies in there somehow. Like they, they've got some eggs. You're going to have to clean it out. But, uh, yeah, he's got, he's got maggots in there eating, uh, eating out the inside of his right ear and it's, it's a hell of a mess. It'll probably oh, need a, it'll guy. probably need a mending. You poor little guy. This must be bothering your hearing. Oh my God. Can you imagine like having maggots sitting there fucking eating your ears? Like you can hear it. And he didn't say anything. He's such a brave little guy. Little, eh? Um, <laughs> Primus is about six foot five and a half. Human by the look and color of him, but uh, you know, at least half Irish, right? I imagine as him as one of those guys you would describe as six foot five by six foot five. Well, yeah, six foot five at the shoulders by about eight <laughs> inches at the he feet. He just looks like a big refrigerator. He's a, he is the letter V. <laughs> with a dot on the top. And that's, that's Primus. But she's got he her... Uh, sunshine. She's got her gloves on now. And, uh, you know, she's working on it. And uh, she... She's, uh, you know, flushing it out. She's got chemicals and herbs and things. Um, and uh, so she gestures with her head to the counter. Um, you see that glass jar over there? There's like a snail in it. Arabit's face pales for a second. You want me to look at a snail? Well, it's not really a snail. Also, Ziva forgot to mention that all those chemicals and tools and stuff like that um, floated over by themselves to where Primus is sitting on a on the autopsy table, leaning way down so that she can get at his ear. Uh, everything just kind of floats over and sets itself up while she's putting on her gloves and walking over towards it. Arabet carefully enters Ziva's parlor. And walks carefully across to the snail, which he can't make oh. float to him. Sorry. You know what? I uh, I forget. I have, like, some ghosts here. And they just kind of help me out sometimes. Of course. Ghosts. That's so much better than magic. There is a frisson of chill across the back of your neck. Uh, Ziva... One of the urge ghosts, not really giving a shit for anything more than getting its, than bringing the instruments and then going over to wait where it waits because that's what it does. It gets the instruments, and it waits. Anyway, because it that's all it does, 
it gets the instruments, it brings the instruments, and then it goes back to wait, but Arabet is in its way, and so it steps through Arabet. And Arabet, without seeing any of this, you get a frisson of chill across the back of your neck. Yes, there are ghosts here. Jameson, what have I told you about walking through people? That's super rude. Please don't do that. Are you okay, Arabet? Arabet rests his hands on the counter. Yes, yes, ghosts. Fine. So much better than magic. I think Diva's actually trying not to laugh. And it looks like she feels bad for laughing. So she's really like trying her, not to. Like those, like her, her, her mouth is bunched up into this tight little, whatever color lipstick you're wearing today. If you're wearing any little dot underneath oh, yeah. your little Deep button purple. nose with these giant saucer sized anime purple eyes glistening with tears that could be taken. Like, you know, is she trying not to cry or? What is with that? But really, Ziva, you're doing your best not to bust out laughing. And and her hands, you know, are deep in Primus's ears, and that she can't cover her mouth, and <laughs> she's trying very hard not to laugh. And she knows that Arabette is a little spooked. She feels really bad. So you're standing there leaning on the table and a shot of whiskey slides across the countertop that you're leaning on to nudge against the, well, you're right, Pinky. Thank you, Gameson. So much better than magic. All right, well, uh, underneath the bell jar in front of you, there are several Eldwood leaves, um, fresh ones. Munching happily on these, climbing up and down a couple of twigs and whatnot, is a snail. Now, this snail is about the size of a banana slug, if you know how big those are. If uh, not, then it's about the size of your average trout. Holy, that's a big snail. And right now it is stuck to the glass, so you can see its whole off yellow-green belly as its two eye stalks blink, you know, in tandem and then independently, depending on when the eye needs to blink. And this snail just chews quietly and softly and gently and contentedly on the old wood leaves. Now, the interesting thing about this snail is the shell appears to be made out of wood. And blazoned on this is a keyhole. What uh, type of keyhole? Is it like traditional old-fashioned style, or is it a more modern one of the uh, old, slit? looks like one of the old skeleton key ones, like old, old, like Bax the Builder-style keys. Bax the Builder, of course, having been infamous for inventing the modern mechanical lock, as well as everything else that Bax the Builder did. Suddenly, Arabit takes that drink of whiskey and whips out his little cache of tools and 
unrolls them onto the table. Okay, so like, um, just be really careful with that because I'm pretty sure that is at the very least part of the thing that we need to unlock the mirror to go get Nari. But like, I know you know everything about locks, so... I haven't seen a lock like this ever. Yeah. N- well, <laughs> I mean, neither am I, and I don't know anything about it, so... I mean... I don't know. What do you need? Well, does the snail move very quickly? Oh, no. It's super slow. I just, like, picked it up. It's actually not slimy. Like, it looks super slimy, but it's not. Not a lot. It's, like, a little slimy. I tilt the bell jar over so that I can access the snail, and then I inspect the lock with a magnifying glass. Okay, well, this shell is about four inches across. Um, for those other countries in the world, which is to say every country in the world that doesn't use Imperial, it's probably 12 centimeters across. Uh, the keyhole is five of those centimeters and sits smack in the spiral of that mollusk's shell. Now, as you take the thing out, the snail itself weighs about half a kilo. and It isn't as slimy as all that on the back. However, the foot, the sticky part, is particularly slick. And so you avoid touching that because it's covered in alien snail mucus and nobody wants that on their hands. Uh, Ziva, is that Elwood leaves that the snail's eating? Yeah. They're like leaves that were part of Jobsworth. And the result of Ziva's necromantic experiments on talking to leaves. You freshed them right up, but they had nothing to say. They have no mind. You can't communicate with the spirit of that, which has no communicative spirit. You can rejuvenate them pretty good, though. You just saved a ton on solid makings. Oh, yeah, I figured out, like how to, like, kind of bring some, like, dead plants back to life a little bit. So, like, go me. But other than that, um, I'm just, like, trying to keep it alive until we can figure out what to do. So there's not a spot on the mirror for the keyhole, right? I think there might be. Or like, but I mean, it could be like, I don't know, you just like put it on. Yeah, there was, there was a space. There was a space in the, in like the wood. There was like a swirl. There's like a missing piece. So basically this lock is not locking anything right now. Well, no, it needs a key. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, it's been removed. Whatever's locked is locked. It has to be replaced, and then we need the proper... Oh, oh, 
opening mechanism. Um, and I'm looking in here and I'm noticing that since it's on the spiral, uh, yeah, a golden ratio mean anything to you? Oh, yeah. So the key we're looking for will have to incorporate the golden ratio probably and be able to maneuver into the depths of <clears throat> the shell uh, in order to actually unlock the lock. Hmm. Okay, so like this key is probably going to be a thing that's like not a normal key or is it going to look like really weird or is it going to be like a normal key that has like some kind of spell on it that it can bend? Oh, I'd suggest that it'll look very much like a normal key in the same way that this looks like a normal lock. It's just that it won't be attached to a key fob, so to speak. It'll probably be, who, who knows, a parrot for all I, I know about these things. But, uh, yeah, we're looking for a something that relates to the snail as much as a key relates to a lock. Uh. You, these are all the twigs that were in with it? Oh, no, there's more. They're, like, all in that box over there. And there's a, a just sort of box with a, all the sticks and everything um, all sorted and, and put in this box. There's, like, there's, like, a, a number or something on there, too. A nine? Yes, indeed. As you turn the shell over, you see that on the other side of the keyhole is what appears to be a number nine. Now, is it definitely a nine or is it a six upside down? Good question. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that, well, the keyhole is a flat picture. This number nine appears to have depth. Arabet is a little bit stumped, but he walks over to the uh, the box of twigs and branches and stuff and takes a peek around for a few minutes while he thinks. So having set the snail down, um, because it's a snail, I mean, you're just going over to the box for a second, and there's lots of people to watch. As you set the snail down and walk away, Ziva, concentrating on Primus's ear, doesn't notice Sia, who drops down off the overhead light and uh, devours the snail. Oh my god. Oh my god, did I just hear that? <coughs> she, um. she, she's like, Primus, I'm so sorry, buddy. Hang on a second. And she yanks off the gloves, turns around, 
goes up to this black tentacled thing covered in eyes and teeth. Sia, open your mouth. All of the eyes open up nice and blink innocently as the tentacles all bunch around in a nonchalant, oh, I wasn't doing anything sort of pose. Open your mouth. There's a little tiny peak of a, like, just, just a little pinhole in the corner of where you know its mouth is. See ya. <laughs> Open. And it opens, it opens its mouth a little more, and you can see there's a couple of white teeth. Ziva <laughs> just fearlessly sticks her hand inside this roiling black thing filled with teeth and feels around for the snail. As she does this, it's like she's unfolding it again and again and again and again. And each time she unfolds Sia a little bit, it doubles in size until finally this whole counter for like four feet in either direction and up the wall and down to the floor until it's like puddled around her ankles because let's face it ziva isn't tall she's half elven and nothing here like everything here is built to suit her five foot stature so like this sia is just unfolded into this big huge maybe 16 square foot mass of teeth and mouth and tentacles. And Ziva's like, you know, it's it's up over her boots. And she's reaching down into the counter. There should not be physical space for her to do this. But she's like rummaging around up to her elbow in what should be countertop. And then like there's a... And she pulls out this big naked mass of snail flesh. Uh, now I need the shell. Hang on. And she holds her hand out with the snail in one hand and sticks her other hand well, the back. Shell, the shell is underneath the unfolded Sia. Right out of the shell. Oh, okay. Uh, she'll, so she hands over the snail to uh, Arabet. Who looks at this mass of snail in his hands. And, oh, magic. Magic, magic, magic. It looks like guts. It looks like what happens when you slice somebody across the abdomen too deeply, you know, except without all the blood. It's just all the purple and strained flesh and veins and muscle. It looks like a muscle, right? Like a heart. Like a, oh God, this is disgusting. And uh, and she kind of leans, stands back and she says, okay, so yeah, you can thank you. You're being a good girl. You know you're not supposed to eat stuff you find on my counter. Yeah, like you're cutie. I can't be mad at you when you're so cute. And like as this is happening, the 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 carpet of teeth kind of folds itself back up, and now it's like a house cat sized ball of fur and feathers with tentacles, and and like it finally folds itself up into something. Uh, Something resembling a rodent-esque sized creature, but uh, it also still has tentacles. <laughs> she, She's like giving it little snuggles and kisses. And then she goes and picks up the, uh, the shell and then takes the snail 
and tries to ease it back into the shell. Well, interestingly enough, since the snail's been out of the shell, it's flattened somewhat. Huh. To about the width of that frame. See, before this, it was about the size of a softball, let's say. Now, it's still round, but it's only about two centimeters thick. She shows Arabet. And now the keyhole side is still flat. It looks like it's painted on. But the number nine side, Arabet, when you look in, oh, it's got mechanisms. I can open that. Oh, sweet. I can't believe it, but I can open it. Um, do you have to believe in it to open it? That's a really interesting question. No, I, I, I can open it. She goes and puts her gloves back on, finishes stitching up Primus, trusting Arabet to do his job. And as you surreptitious, as you set the sna- the the snail flesh aside, the uh, last throes of the dying snail expire just as Sia reaches out and surreptitiously scoops it back into her mouth. <sighs> well, I guess we don't need it. Hey, she earned it. I guess. There's a slurping, chewing sort of noise that underscores the next few minutes of your conversation. <sighs> and I went through all that work to get it back. I thought we needed it. Anyway. So. So we need to reassemble the mirror and then I need to yeah. block. Yeah. And then we can go and get my brother. Uh, did I tell you about my conversation with him? You had a conversation with him? Oh, okay. So, like, it took me, uh, hours. Just, like, fucking hours. And I had to buy, like, I had to spend so much money on all these mirrors. And I had to set up all these mirrors all over the place. And then I did the spell. Episode 4 of Runelanders, The Wildest Dreams. Good job, buddy. Runelanders was recorded live, curated by DM Mad Adam. All of the usual people played all of the usual roles, and you can find out more about who they are, who their characters are, and all the little Easter eggs that I scatter through these episodes by going to runewise.games. That's it, just runewise.games. Like what you hear? Tell your friends. If you don't, let us know why. You can leave us a comment at RuneWise.Games. Find us on Twitter at CastTheRunes. Send an email to RuneLanders at gmail.com. Or find us on Facebook at RuneLanders. Next time on RuneLanders, we're going to have some wicked awesome fun. You have to check it out. We're back in two weeks. We'll see you then. Until next time, take good care.